Welcome to Inside Parliament, a weekly morning tea where we chat over the political topics of the week. We're coming to you from the legendary TVNZ Beehive studio, uh, Andrea Vance, and I know Corin Dan this week because he is working on the biggest story of the week, and that is the One News Colmar Brunton poll results. So a big, big week for this game-changing even. Absolutely. I feel like we say that every week though. What a week. What a week. <laughs> we have but, been saying that every week for three weeks. But I think um, this poll's pretty definitive in the numbers. It shows that the Nats really have something to worry about. Uh, Labour will be pleased with the results, but I mean, the big loser as well. That's the Greens. Shall we take a look at that track? This poll was taken over the last five days, so it captures the full fallout from the Greens meltdown and the so-called Jacinda effect. Now, National, it has slipped back three points this poll. There we go, to 44 down three points. That is its lowest level in four years. Labour, however, soaring 13 to 37%. It's highest since 2008. New Zealand first, down 1% at 10. But look at this. The Greens, there they are, down 11% to 4%. Now, that is hugely significant because it's below the 5% threshold needed to get into Parliament. They do not have an electorate seat back up. They would be gone. The Māori Party, well, they are up 1 to 2, and top is steady at 2. So, with the Greens potentially gone on these numbers, it could be a game-changer, as it would be uh, that 4% would be disregarded with the remaining parties then each getting an increased share of that party vote. So National, under this scenario, would still get 57 seats. Throw in two from the Māori Party, one from ACT and United Future, and it could reach 61. But not quite enough for a majority in this parliament of 122. It would need New Zealand First 12. Now, Labour would have 49 seats. Add in New Zealand First 12, and it would be short on 61 and would need to try and find help from the likes of the Māori Party. However, here's a wee caveat. United Futures' Peter Dunn, if he loses a Haru, as forecast in our poll last week, things change, the size of the parliament drops, and Labour and New Zealand First would be able to form a government together. Now, in the preferred Prime Minister stakes, boy, Jacinda Ardern has surged a whopping 24% to 30. She is now neck and neck with Bill English, who's doing all right. He's up to this poll as well. Winston Peters, meanwhile, back three points to seven. So, fair to say, after an extraordinary month of politics, this election has been turned on its head. So I guess uh, given we've heard a bit about what internal polling has said in the lead up to this this week, we're not that surprised by the results really, are we? No, I mean, we've known really since Materia had to step down that the Greens were going to be in trouble. I, I have to say I'm quite surprised to see them slip below 5% and that is the death zone. It'll be really hard for them to work their way back out of that because quite often these polls are um, self-prophesizing. They're going to have to work really, really hard in this campaign. I don't see how they can turn and, it around. And what do they do? They can't win a seat. I mean, you look at those predictions. If there was any way they could win a seat, that would be a lifesaver. They're not going to win Nelson, where they're going up against Nick Smith. They're putting a lot of money and effort in there, but they're not going to win. The only other way would be for Labour to stand aside in a seat, and that's just not going to happen. Well, there's been some chatter about Wellington Central, but I don't think anyone really is taking that seriously. Grant Robertson is not going to stand aside in Wellington Central. I mean, he loves being the MP for Wellington Central. And I think 
uh, voters as well and Wellington Central just wouldn't accept that this late into the game no and I don't think would he win I just don't think he would in fact you'd be handing it to Nicola Willis almost who that will be a lot closer that Grant Robertson Nicola Willis absolutely well she needs it because she her, on Nat's current polling she wouldn't make it into parliament so, so she, yeah and she's, she's a sort of high hope she's one of those people they want to be in parliament she's one of the ones you know she won't win her seat but mm. they want her in as part of that new look uh, national party so and the, I mean the Greens I've been looking at the results from their past elections they have you know don't forget that in 1999 they got 4.9% on polling day um, once special votes were counted they got to 5.2% plus Jeanette Fitzsimons won Coromandel but that was only after special votes and let's be honest the Greens are a different party now than they were then They're, they've become much more modern much more mainstream they've grown their vote especially in metropolitan urban areas but all that they have now thrown away. So I guess I mean if I were if I were a Greens supporter, I mean obviously you put your time and effort into trying to to come back from this result. But really they need to be looking to the future and what really is a green um, what is a green party is you know do they need to split in two? Do they need to think about the social justice area is is not going to win us any votes? That rump goes away, joins Manor or whatever left wing party that they affiliate with, and and the Greens become a more centrist, environmental focus back to their core. Because otherwise, they're going to constantly be in this period of flux where they don't really can't really work out their identity. Voters can't really work out who they are, and there's a constant tension between their ideology. And it seems that the voters either have a strong Labour and a weak Greens, or a strong Greens and a weak Labour. There's just not those votes there. There's not that. There's not enough there. I mean, I was interested to see whether the Opportunities Party would perhaps have taken some of those green votes. Doesn't look like it. They've gone up about half a percent, eight point eight percent or something. And but that's that's while they are gradually increasing, they're not taking a huge amount of votes at this stage. No, and I think that's what's interesting about our poll actually. I mean, the previous polls people have talked about the votes just sloshing around on the left, but I think that Nationals' vote is starting to turn soft. I'm personally quite surprised to see them dip below 45. I thought if they could hold 45, they'd probably just squeak in this election. Down to 44, well, again, you know, it's very hard. Once you're on the slide, it's very hard to come back from that. And don't forget we had another poll result this week, and that was the Oharu poll result. (laughs) Now, that's really interesting because Peter Dunn is behind by 14 points behind Labour's Greg O'Connor. Now, if Peter Dunn doesn't come in, then National are lacking that one vote, which actually could be the vote that gets them over. When you look at the various mechanisms over who could be, how Labour could form a government, how National could form a government, you almost get it a 60-60. And no Peter Dunn is and bad news maybe no Maori party either yeah. Tamati Coffee is straight ahead you know he's campaigning really well and all Jacinda Ardern has to do is spend a little bit of time in that electorate um, that combined star power really could lift that vote and, and put the Maori party out of contention so again really the landscape is really, really changing it's an earthquake yeah and I think I mean the, the question is really can Labour keep this up and Will those votes, will the Greens get that sort of a percentage more maybe and, and Labour come back a bit as people get more of a chance to look at Jacinda and actually maybe the Greens, you know, once people have calmed down from the initial shock over what's happened, I still don't think it'll be much more. Mm. But whether there will be Green voters and there'll be voters who look at this. What's also interesting and what, you know, national people have been talking about is they think that this will mobilise 
their supporters as well because a lot of national supporters have been complacent over the past particularly this year they just oh you know easy we're gonna win yeah I, i just came back from interviewing bill english his initial response to our poll and that is essentially what they're banking on this the 2014 effect that people were galvanized by the kim.com issue and that it brought national supporters out to vote but there are a lot of national voters who are centrist and they were attracted to john key and now they're seeing jacinda ardern and she's new she's fresh quite like some of our ideas around the environment and she's got that John Key factor like we've talked about before. She she looks good, she sounds good, she's good with people, she's friendly. And it's, you know, it's it's sometimes it's about personality more than policy. And she's hardly put a foot wrong. I mean, I know last week we saw some incidents of her not being able to respond quickly to breaking news events, not being able to answer questions, sticking to one or you know, one particular issue in the day. But this week, I, I you know, we ha- we haven't she's been pretty flawless in her handling of the Barnaby Joyce crisis. That story hasn't unraveled yet. Uh, she she dealt with it quite firmly. She dodged it quite quickly, really. very quickly. Yeah. So, I mean, people keep expecting the the Jacinda effect to melt a little bit or to wear off. But I mean, so far she's played it pretty well. I mean, how long is a political honeymoon? Because she's only she only had six weeks. She's only going to have six weeks as a honeymoon as such. So exactly. it's normally you'd lose. expect to give, <laughs> give people a lot more time than that. Speaking on that other issue, of course, that Barnaby Joyce issue. Uh, the one thing we didn't expect this week is uh, New Zealand and Australia to go to war. Uh, and here's how we reported it. Australia's government's been rocked by a dual citizenship scandal and is lashing out at alleged political interference from across the Tasman. The New Zealand Labour leader, Jacinda Ardern, has revealed that Bill Shorten sought to use the New Zealand Parliament to undermine the Australian government. This is highly unethical at least. Jacinda Ardern, however, isn't having a bar of that, saying today it was highly regrettable that Ms Bishop had chosen to make false claims. Ms Ardern even taking the step of calling the Australian High Commissioner in to explain. I wanted to make clear as well that I'm happy to have a conversation directly with Ms Julie Bishop on this issue. Uh, The relationship between the New Zealand Labour Party and the Australian government is too important for politics to get in the way. Our Foreign Minister, Jerry Brownlee, though, sided with the Aussies. They've just been blindsided by uh, uh, the actions of a New Zealand parliamentarian uh, and and put them into a difficult position. It was Australian media who revealed Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce was a Kiwi citizen and therefore ineligible for Australia's parliament. However, New Zealand Labour MP Chris Hipkins did ask questions of officials here about the issue of dual citizenship following a conversation with an Australian Labour Party member. I would find it very hard to build trust with those involved in allegations designed to undermine the Government of Australia. I had no idea that Barnaby Joyce was involved in any way. Jacinda Ardern accepts that assurance but says Mr Hipkins' questions were inappropriate. Had he known, he wouldn't have asked the question and now regrets having asked it. It's another misjudgment in the Labour Party about an issue that was quite serious and Mr Hipkins should have known that. So, trans-Tasman relations tonight strained, albeit along party political lines. Yes, well, that this has been a big. Uh, was it a storm in a teacup? I don't know. There was a, what I found interesting about it was how much Australia was interested in that Stoush 
this week, uh, the Australian media, Australian politicians, I don't think I've ever heard them talk about New Zealand as much as they did. Is, has it put our uh, relationship at risk, though, really? Oh, God, no. I mean, it, as you say, it's a storm in a teacup. It was essentially political parties scoring points, you know, Liberal and Labour at each other's throats in Australia, National and Labour at each other's throats here. Obviously, Chris Hipkins uh, was not a stellar performance from him this week. You've got to ask what he was thinking when he put these questions in. But, I mean, seriously, did it damage the relationship? Not at all. Julie Bishop didn't genuinely mean that she wasn't going to work with New Zealand if Labour got into power. She's just out to make a political point. And the way the Australian politics is, you know, I think what a lot of people perhaps don't realise here is how close the, that government is to. They've mm. only got one vote. They're close to losing power. They're in real trouble over there. Yeah, there because of a whole lot of other d- domestic issues. And, of course, Julie Bishop wanted to blame the Australian Labour Party. They did not care about the New Zealand Labour Party Absolutely. and what it and meant here. She sh- I mean, she initially set out to blame Chris Hipkins and New Zealand Labour and Jacinda Ardern and then like we said earlier, Jacinda handled it relatively well. Uh, it sort of fizzled out a little bit over here. And Julie then, Julie Bishop then turned her fire on Bill Shorten and Labour Party Which- in Australia. So, you know, she clearly it was a smokescreen to avoid taking responsibility for the real issue which was Barnaby Joyce <laughs> not realising he was a secret Kiwi um, but yeah but the yeah, whole thing be, was slightly let's be absurd. honest it's a ridiculous law that your father was born here in the 1920s and you are no longer eligible to be but a, the constitution a is the it's constitution their, you know, and, and that's their problem that's something they, they should have to deal with and, and you're just watching the, the number of politicians drop by drop like flies over there as a result of it I thought the classic thing for me actually was Bar- someone dug out Barnaby Joyce's comments from when Scott Ludlam had to resign the, yes, yeah, um, the Green, Green, Green Senator, Senator and, and sort of throwing scorn on the idea that he had no idea of his uh, heritage that he might be a Kiwi and then well it obviously came oh, back of course to it came bite back him to on the bum yeah. and, and what's interesting is of course how you know how our relationship has developed and I think um, when I've been talking to the Australian media this week I've talked a lot about look don't forget there's a lot of ill feeling here about how Kiwis are treated in Australia mm. uh, and, and the way that perhaps we're treated a bit like the annoying little brother and we don't actually get the same equal rights over there as they do if they come mm. here now I will throw back to 1983 where we actually signed the Closer Economic Relationship the CER, things were a bit different when it come, came to technology back then It was made a unique occasion by calling into play a live TV satellite skirting any argument as to on just which side of the Tasman the agreement should be signed by linking Parliament buildings in Canberra and Wellington while reaffirming his belief that CER would expand trade opportunities, Mr Muldoon acknowledged that it wouldn't be without difficulty. Underlining all the detail of this agreement is an understanding <coughs> that we both have a better economic future in partnership than we have alone. That understanding will not itself dissolve all problems. We shall have to work and work hard to develop the special relationship being born today. Sentiments echoed by Mr Anthony before both he and Mr Muldoon put their final signatures on pre-signed duplicate agreements and officially approved the slow phasing in over the next 15 years of virtually unfettered trade between the two countries, a regime of closer economic relations that will come into being on the 1st of January. So yeah, almost, uh, I guess, twenty over 25 years ago since that was signed, um, has our relationship become closer? How has it changed? We've obviously still had issues over things like Apple's uh, deportees in more recent times. Um, they change the Prime Minister a lot more often than we do. Mm. But how have things changed? Well, I mean, I suppose in terms of the economic and the genuine political relationship, it's pretty strong. I mean, there are these um, 
continual small issues, the 501s, deportees, um, the issues over Kiwi rights, Kiwi right access to welfare, and then um, the issue that we've had recently where um, the Australian government hasn't given the New Zealand government a, a heads up on on budget policy decisions, uh, the issue over um, education, rights to education funding, and that's still blowing over so I mean the political relationship has its tensions but I think Julie Bishop and Jerry Brownlee seem to have a fairly good relationship we saw this week they were backing each other up over the Barnaby Joyce issue so I, I think th- things haven't really um, you know there's not really an issue there. Yeah, and I think the trade relationship um, is is still strong. There's often mm. issues around, say, apples or other biosecurity issues. Mm. We both have very strong border protection when it comes to those issues, but I think um, we work quite well together <coughs> over them. And when John Key was Prime Minister, obviously he had a very good relationship with Julia Gillard, um, and that was despite them being a national and a Labour government. So that comes back to, I think, whoever is in government, they do end up often you know, having a good relationship despite that. In fact, John Key got on much better with Julia Gillard than he did with Kevin Rudd or Tony Abbott. Absolutely. So he obviously then became best mates with Malcolm Turnbull for the short period they were leaders together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's face it, you guys have a love-hate relationship <laughs> anyway. You you love to fight with each other, and anytime any small issue comes up, it's just blowing up hugely in the media. And it, it makes for a great headline. People love to talk about it. It's a great water cooler issue because you guys hate the Aussies, Aussies hate the Kiwis. But in terms of the relationship has just ticked over quite nicely for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, and it will continue to do that. Apart from rugby, obviously. Yeah. That's not our topic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Apparently there's a rugby game, Blenders Low Cup game on this weekend. I don't think we'll see Australian and New Zealand politicians sitting together watching that, though. Um, Anyway, the other big issue, of course, is always housing and going into the election. And uh, is the housing market cooling? What's going on there? Do we need to make changes to those uh, LVR rules? We had some comments from Bill English and Jacinda Ardern over that this week. We're seeing some sort of correction. We're yet to see uh, how it will flow out. I mean, some real estate agents are saying that um, (coughs) because of the election, that's prolonging what would usually be a quieter winter period and that prices might pick up again after the election. That, um, you know, that might depend on the certainty or otherwise of what of government policy. I think we've given um, a huge amount of clarity uh, and transparency over this. We've made it very clear we're not campaigning on a capital gains tax, um, and we do not believe on a capital gains tax or anything similar applying to a family home. But at the same time, we've also acknowledged that we don't think there's fairness in our taxation system. Uh, We've proposed a review, which we hope to hold in government, which we will hold in government. I'm not preempting what that review will find, in the same way that the government, when they campaigned in 2008, did not preempt the work that their 2010 taxation report would find. But I am maintaining our right and ability to act on its findings and do the right thing we're in government. We're yet to know what that will be. And joining us now, we have a very special guest whose first question was, does he get to eat any scones? <laughs> yes, he does, but um, we've told him that unlike Corin Dan, he can't put jam on his cheese scones. Uh, this is Bernard Hickey. He is the managing editor of Newsroom Pro and the uh, our gallery expert when it comes mat- to all matters housing. Slash um, geek. <laughs> yeah, right. The big brain of the gallery. <laughs> the yeah. And uh, so so what do you, what do you think's going on here, Bernard? What's, what's happening this week? Why are they talking about it now? It was really surprising to see Bill English answer the question, do you think we should wind back the LVRs? Because the Reserve Bank has been pretty staunch for the last couple of years. No, they're in place. We said they were a temporary to start with, but I've got no plans to get rid of them. But very surprising for uh, Bill English to, ca- to say, you know what, 
the housing market slowed down, maybe it's time to get rid of them. He was also asked the DTIs, the debt to income multiples, which people are really worried about because mm. more than half of new lending now is done at more than five times income. Yeah. And the Reserve Bank has said, hey, we could put a restriction on at that five times income level. So uh, Bill English said, no, we're not interested in DTIs, even though the Reserve Bank is still consulting on it. And this is sort of borderline interfering with yeah, the Reserve Bank. Given one, how close we are to an election, and two, the, the supposed independence of the Reserve Bank, what's going on? What is he doing? What is he thinking? Is it because we're so close to an election? Well, I think he sees an opportunity. A little chink of light has opened up in the Labour Party position on the capital gains tax. Yes, yeah. Because under Andrew Little, he'd said, no, we're not going to do a capital gains tax in our first term. We'll have this tax working group but we before we make any changes like that we'd come back to the electorate first but grant robertson on the weekend opened it up wouldn't rule out a capital gains tax in the first term and then jacinda ardern has done the same this week and bill english his eyes lit up you could see it Absolutely. and he and he saw all right Seemed to work for John Key when he monstered David Cunliffe in that uh, press Life, debate. Yeah. And uh, maybe I can put a wedge in here between the homeowners of New Zealand, who tend to vote a lot more than the renters, and the Labour Party, because uh, Labour has opened up the prospect of a capital gains tax in the first term. Uh, yeah, I think they've more than opened up. I mean, I think the way that Jacinda talked on Tuesday in our regular caucus stand-up, she talked quite passionately about it. I mean, yes, they're going to kick it for touch till after the election. They're going to have an advisory group, you know, go and have a go away and have a look on tax. But let's be honest, that group, like every other group in the world, is going to recommend a, a capital gains tax. And I think if you listen to her and you weren't aware of the context, you say, oh, well, Labour are going to do a capital gains tax. And the question is, are they being honest with the electorate? Are they being honest with voters? Do they always have they always planned to do a capital gains tax? And they just don't want to scare the before the election, are they genuinely weighing it up? And should she be saying, if the tax working group recommends a capital gains tax, we will implement it? And that's because that's the question, and, and she's trying to skirt around it, but her language, as Andrea says, is far warmer than, than Andrew Little's ever was. And, and she's trying to have it both ways, really. She's trying to say, I'm not campaigning on it, mm. but in brackets, I might do it anyway. And that's the worry for Labour here, is that National will jump on this uncertainty, just as they did with the water tax, and fill in the gaps. Mm, and that yeah. was the problem for David Cunliffe in the Larks election campaign. He wasn't really on top of the policy. There were gaps and little tweaks there that he wasn't able to communicate. And the risk here is that Bill English bores in on that gap and says, you know what, you're really about a capital gains tax, aren't you? Isn't there an irony here, though? Because, I mean, some economists say that, in fact, it was the bright line measures that are more to do with the flattening of house prices than the LVRs. And that is essentially a capital gains tax, isn't it? So isn't there a, a somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek irony here with National using this to attack Labour? Yes, I mean, that's the guts of it. The capital gains tax was introduced by the national government and Labour is promising to extend it from two years to five years. If she was being uh, clever, you could say that she could promise we're going to extend to five years, that's the bright line test, and then not bring in a capital gains tax until after the next election. Wouldn't actually make much difference, really. Mm. Uh, but um, she's, as you say, passionate about it, as is Grant Robertson. Mm. They really are uh, together on this. Um, they are Batman and Robin, so to speak. Um, it started off with uh, Grant Robertson being Batman, but, but it's been flipped. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe, maybe it's Batwoman and Robin, I don't know. But wouldn't it be so exciting if this was 
I mean, the capital gains tax became a huge issue in 2014, aside from dirty politics. Wouldn't it be exciting that after Andrew Little tried to put the issue to bed, actually, just this is what we're talking yeah. about. Because it is yeah. a big... And a why not be brave enough? Why not just say it? If they're going to do it, why not just say it and see where that goes? Because there are, there's we a lot where it's going to go, though. Yeah. It's going to go the same way as it did. <laughs> well, but how much of that was because of David Cunliffe, though, as well, mm. and, and what was going on in 2014? It, we've had now three years of stories about how bad the housing market is and awareness of it and people talking about it and looking at it and going, something needs to happen. Although we've just had now this softening of the market. And I is think, it though, be? isn't housing still... I mean, housing is still... I know it's died down a little bit, but isn't housing still a huge issue for National? One story that really struck me this week is the story that you've been d- digging away on about this issue of the absurdity of National now buying motels. After selling hundreds of state houses. They've now bought four motels. They're buying two more. They spent $8.5 million on these four motels. Um, and that works out at about $140,000 per motel year unit. Now these motels, one are in Auckland, one in Gisborne, one in Apey, one in Hastings. I looked at house prices in Gisborne. You can actually buy an entire three-bedroom house for under $140,000. And the government is working with social housing providers. They're trying to, you know, they say that this, this is emergency housing. It's different from state houses. It's the same people. Just it's people who need houses. It's the people who need houses over their heads, roof over their heads. Yeah. They're the ones they living in castle carriage. They don't care where it is. Mm. And if, you, if you're living in a car or a garage, you're going to be happy to be living in a motel unit. But it seems extraordinary that that's what you have to spend all that emergency housing money on is buying motels. Although they are spending up to, you know, they're spending $200 a night, $290 a night some in some cases to put people up in motels. So it probably actually works out cheaper to buy an entire motel mm. than it does to pay to put them up in, in some of these. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a boom business in Auckland right now, owning motels and, and renting it out to NSD. Yeah. And boarding houses. And boarding houses, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, so so th- this, I mean, this housing issue is just, there's, there's so many parts of it. And I think every poll we've done and everything issue, every time we ask people what the big issue, issue is, they do say housing. Yeah. And do you think it is going to be the, uh, one of the yeah. still be one of the defining issues of the election? If only because the mathematical, the, the electoral mathematics of housing and voting is so strong. The percentage of people who vote, uh, who own property, is much, much higher than the percentage of people who are renters and own property. And you've got to remember that over the last eight years, New Zealanders who've owned property have seen the value of that property rise by $600 billion. That is the growth in their wealth. And when someone comes along and says, I'm thinking of taxing that $600 billion, you fight for it. And you at least vote for it when the people on the other side who would benefit if that was brought in aren't voting as much. And they don't have the resources to fight it. Well, instead of tackling, uh, trying to capture the youth vote... By being youth adjacent, perhaps Jacinda should go after the rental vote. Maybe that's where the, where the votes lie for well, her. S- sadly, they're the same. That's the problem. It's it's the young people who are actually renting, and that will be a challenge. You know, can she motivate people and explain to them that her policies are going to make them better off as potential home buyers and also as renters? Because really, we need a massive increase in housing supply to try and deal with these housing problems. But it's, it's been the third rail of New Zealand politics for decades. Mm. And when you talk to people like Michael Cullen, they were scared witless of even going near a capital gains tax because they knew in their electoral bones this was dangerous, as it turned out to be for David Cunliffe. But that fear of politicians, of scaring off voters, has compounded the problem, hasn't it? That's where we are, where we are today. If someone had done something about this 10 years ago, it would, we'd be in a different position. That's right. The other thing to think about with the capital gains tax is that Winston... If Labour are going to be in, he's, they're going to have to have Winston on board. Yeah. That is, you know, 
talk about third rail, you know, that's the full-on full on main trunk line, uh, capital gains tax for his voters. He will never allow it. No. So, no. Uh, yeah, and if, if, if you were being really clever um, for, for Jacinda to say, uh, actually, we, we want a capital gains tax, but we know that Winston won't allow it, so you've got nothing to worry about. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you, Bernard. You can have a scone now. Ah, I I've, I've sung for my supper. <laughs> yeah. um, so that was Bernard yeah, Hickey from Newsroom Pro. Uh, thank you for listening to Inside Parliament this week. It's our weekly catch-up on the political stories we've been covering at One News with Andrea Vance and myself, Katie Bradford. No Corin Dan this week. Uh, we're heading on the campaign trail now, so you can probably expect us to be all over the country for the next month. Um, this will be available every Friday morning throughout the campaign on the One News Facebook page, or find us by searching for Inside Parliament on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next week.